Welcome to Expositional Excerpts. I'm your host, Matthew Pilch. I pastor Grace Fellowship Baptist Church in Port St. Lucie, Florida. Let's dive into the Word. In today's episode, we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. We're not quite going to make it to the Noahic Covenant, even though everything was leading up to that in the last three verses of chapter 8. We're going to take a break from that because remember what happened in the last three verses of chapter 8 was really a conversation that the Lord had in his own head and we're privy to that because of the Holy Spirit. But that's not something that Noah was privy to. He did uh, worship the Lord uh, without any knowledge of what the Lord was going to do in response to the offering that was given, which is very encouraging, and we talked about that. And then we saw how the Lord responded internally, and we'll see some of those elements then brought out in the covenant. But before we get to that, we want to see the blessing of God Uh, for or towards Noah, and that's really seen in the first seven verses. So we're going to now look at the blessings of God. Verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man." We'll go ahead and stop there. I know it goes on just a couple more verses, but let's get into this here as we look at the uh, the blessings of God. And really, one of the things that we want to note structurally is that this is, just from a grammatical and structural standpoint, this is what's called an inclusio form, where you have a beginning and an end that kind of make a sandwich, if you will. And so you you start it and cap it the same way. And so we see that in verse 1, where God says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. And then in verse 7, he says, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth. That, that forms this inclusio. This is kind of just a Hebrew uh, uh, tool here, a grammatical tool, and people would recognize that uh, and as significant. So we want to make sure that we just point that out said at the beginning and the end that really helps to form uh, the main emphasis of the blessing is that you have this reiteration of the Edenic blessing, be fruitful, multiply, uh, is is reiterated here. That's kind of the main point. And so the original command then comes from Genesis 1.28. That's where it's reiterated. And we note then that a reset button has been hit. And it doesn't just have to start from nothing. God doesn't have to wipe out all of creation and start over and recreate man and recreate everything. Just as he told Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, now he tells Noah and his sons the same thing. And this command goes forward to today because nothing has actually changed from this point here in Genesis 9 up to now, uh, theologically speaking, with regard to these things. Some are not able to have children. We understand that. 
Uh, we think of Psalm 127, 3 to 5. Children are a heritage of the Lord and the fruit of the womb a reward. Uh, we, we do know that some are not able to have children. It doesn't mean that if you're not able to have children that you can't fulfill the mandate uh, or, or that, that you're somehow sinning. Uh, this is as a natural result of the fall and the curse. And so, uh, but we, we have to understand that children are indeed a blessing. So the mindset isn't, have I sinned if I can't have children? The mindset is, uh, how do I look at children and how do I look at the world around me? We have a group of people in the world today, the same chicken littles who are saying that the sky is falling, uh, leading up to that discussion that we had in verse 20 of chapter 8. Those same people who are telling us that the world is about to be destroyed by climate change are also telling us that the world is severely overpopulated and they're doing their utmost uh, to try and make sure that that uh, we are not procreating and no more children are, well, not no more children, period, but that uh, much fewer children so that we can start to see a decline in world population rather than a growing number. Now, without getting into lots of statistics and things like that, uh, I have read over the years, lots of people have tried to figure this out, uh, but with the total population of the world, let's say it's hovering right around 8 billion right now, with the total population of the world being such as it is, we could actually fit everybody in the world, I believe it was said, into an area the size of Texas, okay? Just to give a, you know the primarily U.S. audience a little frame of reference here, Texas is a big state, we get it, but everybody could fit comfortably. That's have your own house, yard, everything like that. Now, it's not going to be quite to the New Jerusalem specifications of Revelation 21 where you get like a third of an acre uh, or, or, or a third of a mile, excuse me. It's not going to be quite like that. But everybody could comfortably have their own home with property uh, and a typical family, I should say, and the entire population of the world could fit in a place, the area the size of Texas. So that doesn't sound to me like a completely overrun, overpopulated world. We tend to get pictures of heavily populated cities that are crammed in with high rises and things like that, but that's not, that's not the state of all the earth. And so we don't want to listen to people who don't believe God, uh, and we want to have this mentality. Again, it comes back to what is your mentality? Uh, what is your disposition towards God's mandate? Even if you can't personally have children, are you open to that idea? Do you recognize that children are indeed a heritage from the Lord and a blessing? Uh, hopefully, that's your mindset going into this. Now, after he gives this uh, reiteration of the Edenic mandate, then there is the promise of dominion over the animal world. Now, this is also interesting uh, because things would have certainly changed a little bit after the fall of Genesis chapter 3 with regard to man and relation to the beasts of the field. However, there is the supernatural hand of protection of God uh, upon all of humanity. I think that he had put the fear of, of man into animals. But now he says that man is going to have dominion over them, and that's very important. So in verse 2, he says, The fear of you shall be upon every beast of the field and upon all the birds of the heavens or upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. 
every, you know, and then he goes on and talks about the food aspect. So uh, remember that we are, we are given a dominion mandate also back before the fall, Genesis one twenty six. let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, let them have dominion. Okay. So that is given in Genesis one twenty six. That's again, repeated after the flood. So the dominion mandate is still in effect. Uh, but that was given without a promise of protection here. Uh, we now have a promise of protection so that it doesn't mean that there aren't exceptions, but by and large, uh, these are general truths that we can really count on that the animal world is, is, has the fear of God put into them with regard to mankind. So the fear of you, the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, so forth. So it's a promise of divine protection. That's really incredible. Uh, and, it's just one of those things. We live in Florida. Okay. So here's a great example locally from where we live. We have a lot of alligators. And so people who don't live around alligators, you know, I think that there may be an unhealthy fear (laughs) if I could say that. And, and it's not to say that alligators aren't predators. They definitely are predators. I don't know if they fall on that apex predator list that they're at the top of the food chain. They're definitely up there. They're definitely scary. They can do, you know, dangerous things, but here's how we need to think about alligators, right? As far as, you know, Floridians, alligators naturally don't like human beings. Isn't that interesting? Now, if you're the right size, like a small human being, you know, that's going to look like prey, something like a small dog or a chicken. Well, if you have a baby that's going to fit into that category, they might not distinguish as much. But as a general rule, alligators don't like humans. If a human gets in the water where alligators are, they generally will swim away. Uh, and so, you know, we have that. So back in the days, you know, uh, several decades ago, when Florida was less populated and, you know, all of these other things, a lot of people would just go swimming in the rivers here and go swimming in some of the lakes, uh, Lake Okeechobee. And there's a river kind of near us, the Loxahatchee River. People, there, there's a spot on the Loxahatchee kind of near where we are, where there was a swimming hole kind of marked off. And we were told, we took a boat tour several years ago, we were told that that's where people would go swimming. And it wasn't like they put a fence in the water or ropes or anything like that. And I remember asking the tour guide, so what would happen if there was an alligator in the water? And they said, oh, the alligators would just swim away. And I think people have just kind of lost track of that. It is somewhat amusing because we have this incredible fear, but we forget that this is really in effect. Now, does it mean that you should just walk up to a grizzly bear if you're out hiking in Alaska, or if you see an alligator, you should just march confidently up to them and, you know, think that they're going to run away? Uh, Probably not. That's probably not the better part of wisdom there. So, you know, don't, don't do that and say you heard it from me. I'm saying don't do that. I still think we need to exercise discretion in those things. Uh, But the fact of the matter is, is generally speaking, obviously this is all still in effect and they do have the fear of God put in them. So that's pretty interesting. Uh, But again, there's always exceptions and we see all sorts of these things happen uh, as, as far as exceptions are concerned. I mean, there was a zookeeper at the Palm Beach Zoo. That's a little bit south of us killed by a tiger that she had cared for 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 years and so there are exceptions to the rules so again we don't want to necessarily bend it but 
think about it this way. If all the animals of the world, especially apex predators, had no fear of humans at all, and every time they saw a human, they just charged and attacked, well, the whole world and the, the economy of the world would look a lot different uh, than it does today. This is definitely still in effect. We are protected by the covenant of God. All right. Then God also says in verses three to six that creation, specifically animals and birds and fish and even creeping things, all of it can now be used for food. Uh, Verses three to six, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. You're not just to be uh, uh, an herbivore, a vegetarian. Uh, You are, you can eat all of these animals. They are good for food. And there are a couple observations that we need to make with regard to this. Jewish dietary laws are rescinded in the book of Acts. Uh, and we see that in Acts chapter 10, where you know Peter has this vision on the rooftop and the sheet is lowered from heaven and then all the animals are on there. And, and he's told, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And that's to give him an example. I, I do believe that the dietary laws was rescinded then. But it's also to serve as an example that the the gospel is going to go to everybody, to the Gentiles as well as the Jews. But the Jewish dietary law is not in effect here. What happens in Acts chapter 10 is that the dietary restrictions are lifted and we revert back to this state, to Genesis chapter 9, verses 3 to 6. Everything is on the table. Everything is okay to eat. Now, there is one caveat, and the caveat here has nothing to do with clean or unclean. Again, these are Jewish, those would be Jewish, uh, you know, boundaries and Jewish distinctions there. The only caveat that is listed here is that they cannot eat, uh, eat animals with their blood. So this is not talking about how you like your steak, you know, rare, or very rare, and by the way, that reminds me of an experience that I had when I was stationed in Europe many, many years ago when I was active duty. And uh, we were in France and our hosts had decided that they were going to provide a meal for us. And the main course, the main entree of that meal was a dish called beef tartare. And that is almost raw. I mean, I've never had anything so close to raw in my life. Needless to say, I did not enjoy that very much. I tried it, you know, they say when in Rome, but this is not a dietary prohibition like that against uh, something like that, having rare or very rare steak. That's not what we're talking about. So then the question is, why the prohibition? So really what we have here is the sanctity of life. That's what we're supposed to be considering. And the statement is made that the life is in the blood. So you're not going to die if you eat blood sausage or monkey brain soup. But the idea here is a theological representation that blood represents life. Now, there was a dietary restriction, and we can go from that dietary restriction to a life application. And he said, this is really for your lifeblood. Uh, just as the animal's life is in its blood, so is your lifeblood. And then he goes from there and he says, verse five, and for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. That means if your blood is spilled, God's going to require the reckoning. 
The interesting thing here is this isn't just talking about how this will happen at the hands of human government, although that's true, but God also says he'll require it from the animals. So if the animals attack you, then God is going to summarily judge that animal or that beast. So while he has given permission to kill animals and to eat them, and this is what it means to subdue and have dominion over them, he has not given permission to kill people. And so there's a huge distinction here. And we're supposed to actually remember that every time we prepare food, especially food from animals, uh, there is to be a reminder of the sanctity of human life. We have explicitly been given permission to eat animals, but in that is always a reminder that is just always there, ever present, that we are not allowed to, nor have we been given permission by God to kill our fellow human beings like we have been given permission to kill animals. So that's very, very fascinating just to see that come forward from the text. And this reiterates then what the Imago Dei. This is the whole image of God. For God made man in his own image. This is where we get to this saying here that is in verse 6 and verse 7. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Again, not permission here. And a lot of people see this as the institution of human government and the authority that that lies with it. And and I agree with that. Uh, Even before we get to the account of of Nimrod and the city that are going to follow, it, it is actually very important to note that this is now the basis for civil government because it's not just a random person. You know, you have to think through this. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man, not by that man specifically, but by man shall his blood be shed. Now, I know this is controversial here because ultimately this is really talking about capital punishment and the whole idea of the death penalty. Should a person be put to death for certain crimes? And the answer biblically is very simple. And the answer is yes. Yes, he should. Uh, It should work as a deterrent to other people. And we've actually seen that borne out. Uh, You know, we've seen crimes committed uh, by people, murder specifically, where somebody has premeditated, they've been able to be interviewed in jail afterwards or in prison, I should say. And when asked why they did what they did, I remember reading a story about somebody, I think they were from Washington State, and they came to, I think, think it was Illinois. I I can't remember for sure. Um, I don't have it right in front of me. But anyway, they just wanted to commit murder. So they weren't tracking a specific subject or anything like that. They just wanted to see what it was like to murder somebody. And they realized that if they got caught in that state at that time, this is many years ago, uh, that they would face the death penalty potentially. And they realized that chances were probably pretty good that they would get caught. And so then they started doing some investigation and ended up going to a state that did not have capital punishment. And even if they were caught and found completely guilty of premeditated murder, uh, all they would face would be a jail sentence. You know, maybe life in jail, but that's better than death. There is something to be said when you see people around you doing a crime, uh, as awful as it is, there needs to be, uh, you know, this sense of a deterrent 
And, and that is a deterrent. If you know that when you commit a crime, you are going to be put to death for it, that might make you stop and think twice. Not saying it's going to end everything and cure all, uh, you know, murder, but the fact is, is then God does say this is the way it should be. Now, why? Why does he institute this human government and give them this authority? Because it is a violation of the image of God. The reason that somebody should be put to death for the crime of murder. That's what's in view here when we're talking about shedding the blood of man. Not that I accidentally punched him and he bled a little bit, but shedding his blood is is representative here, a symbolic of death, because that's what happens when you're preparing an animal for food. Its blood is being spilled. You can't eat the blood because that's the life. It represents that. When you spill or shed man's blood, you're talking about taking his life from him. If you do that intentionally, then the penalty should be death. Why? Because man has been placed off limits. You can kill, you can kill animals. You can eat animals. God has given us food uh, in, in plants, all of that stuff. That's all fine. You can't touch the image bearers. And that's something that we've really kind of gotten away from here. Uh, God has not given us permission to kill our fellow human beings. And not only has he not given us permission, he's set a very strict punishment for it because we bear the image of God. And so we don't want to forget that. And then he not only says that, uh, but in verse seven, he says, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply it. Uh, in it. And so again, that's that inclusio where it starts with one way and it ends the same way. Beautiful uh, thing here. But what we find as we wrap up these seven verses of Genesis chapter nine, these, these first seven verses here is literally every aspect of the promises, the mandates, uh, everything that God has dialogued with mankind that was recorded for us in chapter one of Genesis is reiterated in this chapter. We have the image of God. We have the the mandate, the cultural mandate to go and multiply. We have the the, the global mandate to subdue the earth and to to dominate over the wildlife and the animals and the, and the plants. All of that is again reiterated. So he takes every aspect of chapter one and reiterates it when the world has been created anew. So it's it's really fascinating to see that, and it's worth our notation. Well, we have to stop there, and we will come back and pick it up in verse 8 as we begin the discussion of the Noahic Covenant. This has been another podcast of Expositional Excerpts with Pastor Matthew Pilch. If you'd like more information, please visit our church website at gfbc.net.